Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. All right, welcome to our continued study of End Times. Tonight we are continuing in Revelation chapter 6. Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 6. And you will remember from your schedule of the events to take place before and after the return of Jesus, the Messiah, that I believe that these seals will be opened prior to the seven years of tribulation. We have already looked at the first two seals, uh, and we will briefly look at those just to remind you, and then we hopefully will have a chance to look at the other seals tonight. But in preparation for what we're about to read, I want to read Psalm 98. And I want you to think about this psalm and think about how it will apply to what we're seeing tonight. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right arm and his, his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth, sing for joy, sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and with the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And with that as a backdrop, we look in Revelation chapter 6 of the six seals. Verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And we saw that... I believe this refers to the Antichrist, uh, and he will be living, and he will continue to live throughout, obviously not only these seals, but throughout the seven years of the tribulation. Then we come to the second seal, verse 3, and when he broke the second seal, I heard the sound, second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men should slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now this is war. And I said to you that I believe that that's the war spoken of in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 that we looked at last time. And this war, again, these seals are not... Uh, one goes and stops and another one starts, but they're overlapping. So I think this war will probably carry throughout 
uh, these seals. And as we'll see tonight why I say that. Now we come to seal number three. Verse five. And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine. Here of seal three is a worldwide famine. A quart of wheat will cost a denarius. Now, basically, a denarius was a day's wages. So if you put it in today's terms, even if you go with the minimum wage, which is now something over $5, right? One, do you remember how much the minimum wage is? Is it six now? All right, six times eight, $48. Basically, a quart of wheat will make a loaf of bread. So what we're talking about is a situation where a loaf of bread is going to cost... Around $50. All right? That's the kind of economic situation we're looking at with the famine that, that he's mentioning. People will make just enough to keep from starving in the developed countries. Notice he says the oil and the wine will not be harmed. Now, the oil and the wine were food for the rich. And what I think he is saying to us is while... Most will starve, and those in developed countries will barely get by. The rich will still be able to live in plenty. It will not, for all practical reasons, really affect them. So what we're seeing, I believe, in this seal is a widening of the economic levels, a widening of the income levels where you have the very rich, and then you have everybody else. Now, any time in history when you have a wide gap between the rich, the haves, and the have-nots, it tends to breed unrest with the have-nots. They tend to get upset, particularly in the mindset of our times that we're living in. Uh, the have-nots tend to think that they deserve to have what the haves have, even if they don't work for it and don't deserve it. So you can see where this will cause a great deal of anxiety and unrest, which sets the stage now for the Antichrist. All of this is moving towards setting the stage for the Antichrist. Now, my opinion, and this is only opinion, I think as Russia moves into the Middle East, prior to their invasion of Israel proper, but as they move into the Middle East, they will capture the oil wells and they will control the flow of oil. Other oil wells will be destroyed. You remember what Saddam Hussein did in the first Gulf War? Set all those oil wells on fire? Now with Russia and her alliance controlling the oil flow out of the Middle East, that is going to cause tremendous chaos, economic chaos, and destruction in the rest of the world that depends so much on the oil from the Middle East. 
And when you don't have the oil, you don't have the fuel. When you don't have the fuel, you can't run the farm machinery needed to produce the food. And so it's, I believe, easy to see how the supply and demand kicks in. You have little food, great demand. What does that do to the price of food? It skyrockets. Now, how likely is it that we would experience and see a famine like this? Well, Scripture says it's going to happen, so we know it is. But again, I think it's interesting to even see what the world is saying about the possibility of these things. Now, this comes from uh, uh, the uh, New York uh, media page uh, and has to do with an article uh, written uh, by a man by the name of Thomas Riggins. Is a worldwide famine in the works? Third world threatened with food shortage, says the UN. And he's writing this article about what the UN has come out with. He says, the UN has warned us that a famine of biblical proportions may be on the way. Tuesday's New York Times has the story. World food supply is shrinking, UN agency warns. And that was written by Elizabeth Rosenthal. Now here's the gist of what she said. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization has stated that there's a very serious risk that fewer people will be able to get food in the coming years. It doesn't sound very good at all, Rosenthal, reporting from Rome, says his reason for announcing this is that because of an unforeseen and unprecedented shift, the world food supply is dwindling rapidly and food prices are soaring to historic levels. There appears to be only 12 weeks of wheat and eight weeks of corn left in storage based on worldwide consumption levels to feed the world in the case of an emergency. In other words, if something happened on a worldwide scale that prohibited the growing of food or greatly hampered it, there's only 12 weeks of wheat left and eight weeks of corn left, to supply the world. After that, there'd be nothing. One reason for this is that it is more profitable to grow non-food crops and food crops. There's been a shift away from farming for human consumption to crops for biofuels and cattle feed. The leader of the World Food Program is quoted as saying, we're concerned that we're facing the perfect storm for the world's hungry. Other experts are equally gloom. A major crop disease or climate change in an important area would put the hungry in a risky situation. This has already happened in Australia, lack of rain, and in Ukraine also climate change with less food being produced. Now remember what they said about climate change be one of the things that would cause this famine. He, the article goes on to say, but do not worry in the USA. 
we'll be able to ride it out. In the USA, Australia, and Europe, there's a very substantial capacity to adapt to the effects on food with money, technology, research, and development. In the developing world, there isn't. It's comforting to know that if disaster strikes, it will be the poor of the third world to die off while we will continue to pollute the atmosphere, destroy the climate, and have all the junk food we need to see us through. (laughs) Now, the oil and wine won't be affected. Could that be an allusion to the first world countries? And though we will be affected, we will not be so drastically affected as the third world countries. We'll make it by somehow, barely. But there will be billions of people who will barely make it millions who will not. That's the third seal. Fourth seal is found as we continue to read in verse 7. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades, was following with him, and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. This fourth horse, this fourth seal, is death. Widespread death. Death of a fourth of the world's population. The latest figures I've been able to find is that there's an estimated 6.8 billion people living in the world today. 6.8 billion. A fourth of those is 1.7 billion people. This seal, when it is opened, there will be death of 1.7 billion people. That is unimaginable to us. The United States population now is reaching 300 million. This 1.7 billion is over five times the population of the United States. Imagine the effect that the death of 1.7 billion people will have on the geopolitical scene. Just burying that many people will be an enormous logistical problem. Now he says this death of 1.7 billion people will come by four means. First, he says the sword. That's war. I believe that the Russian invasion of the Middle East that we saw in Ezekiel 38 39 And when God sends fire on Gog and Magog, when he destroys Russia, then again, this war will cause hundreds of millions of people to die. By the way, 1.7 billion is 1,700 million. Okay? 1,700 million. Hundreds of millions will die in this war. Secondly, through famine 
and starvation. To kill with the sword and with famine. Now it's interesting that even a limited nuclear raid could devastate the economy. This is an article that uh, came out in the New York Times a while back. It says, in a major challenge to the government's position on the long-term effects of nuclear war, a new study concluded that a limited attack on the United States involving only 1% of the Soviet strategic nuclear arsenal could set off a collapse of the American economy that would last for decades. A study by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology said an attack aimed only at fuel, liquid fuels and their distribution points could cripple transportation, energy production, and key industries, damaging the nation's economy so thoroughly that most of the population would die of starvation in months. Now, that's an MIT study. The survivors, it said, would be reduced to near medieval levels of existence for decades. Now, I bring that out mainly to talk about the effects that a, a catastrophic event would have on our economy and how this death of a billion people, the famine and the starvation, uh, would take more hundreds of millions of people's lives uh, and how the United States could be affected very in a very adverse way as a result of this as well. Third, first by sword, that is war. Others will be killed by famine and starvation. And then thirdly, and with pestilence by diseases by plagues. I have an article here from the World Health Organization. Ten things you need to know about pandemic influenza. One of the things is influenza pandemics are reoccurring events. This is probably not new to any of you. An influenza pandemic is rare but reoccurring event. Three pandemics occurred in the previous century. The Spanish influenza of 1918, the Asian influenza of 1957, the Hong Kong influenza of 1968. The 1918 pandemic killed an estimated 40 to 50 million people worldwide. The world may be on the brink of another pandemic. Health experts have been monitoring a new and extremely severe influenza virus, the H5N1 strain, for almost eight years. The H5N1 strain first infected humans in Hong Kong in 1997, and that's what you know as the bird flu, causing 18 cases, including six deaths. Since mid-2003, the virus has caused the largest, most severe outbreaks in poultry on record. In December 2003, infections in people exposed to sick birds were identified. It says all countries will be affected. Once a fully contagious virus emerges, its global spread is considered inevitable. 
Countries might, through measures such as border closures and travel restrictions, delay arrival of the virus but cannot stop it. The pandemics of the previous century encircled the globe in six to nine months, even when most international travel was by ship. Given the speed and volume of international air travel today, the virus could spread more rapidly, possibly reaching all continents in less than three months. They also said medical supplies will be inadequate. The supplies of vaccines and antiviral drugs are way below what will be needed to combat it. Large numbers of deaths will occur, the World Health Organization says. Historically, the number of deaths during a pandemic has varied greatly. Death rates are largely determined by four factors. The number of people who become infected, the uh, virtual the power of the virus, the underlying characteristics and vulnerability of affected populations, and the effectiveness of the preventive measures. Accurate predictions of mortality cannot be made before the pandemic virus emerges and begins to spread. All estimates of the number of deaths are purely speculative, but they've estimated from 2 to 7 million deaths, and that's a conservative estimate if this bird flu or when we have a new influenza pandemic. And also notice they say economic and social disruption will be great. High rates of illness, work and absenteeism are expected, and these will contribute to social and economic disruption. Again, I don't know if God's going to use the bird flu as his as his uh, pestilence there, his plague and disease. But this just shows you it's not a stretch. One of these days we're going to have another pandemic of the influenza. Not to mention biological warfare and those agents getting released during this war that we studied about last week, what that might ravage on the nation. you got AIDS and its effect that it's having across the world as well. So there will be hundreds of millions killed through pestilence and disease and plagues. There's a genetic alteration going on. I was reading an article today uh, that some people believe that uh, they are coming to the place that they can, can place DNA in viruses and, and that that could be dangerous. It could have some consequences we don't realize. And then lastly, he says the fourth thing that will kill will be the wild beast of the earth. You know, we've read reports, we've read stories of in times of, of drought, in times uh, of shortage of food, the wild animals start coming into the cities. You remember out west, we read about some of the wildfires and it drives the animals in. Well, notice again, this is going to be a tremendous upset in the ecological systems of the world with all of this turmoil going on and, and, and the war, the famine, the starvation, the pestilence. And so it is very conceivable that the wild animals in their extreme hunger will begin to invade the populated areas seeking uh, seeking prey. Yeah, that's right. The bears have come down, haven't they? They have some in the Atlanta area. All right, seal number five, martyrdom, verse nine. 
And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now you might find that rather interesting. They're told, wait a minute, it's not time for God to pour out His His judgment in a way that stops all of this because there's still more Christians yet to be killed. Their number has not been completed yet. I believe that the... uh, Persecution and the killing of Christians will be uh, tremendously accelerated in in these days, even though we're seeing it in our day and time. Uh, You've heard the statistics. More have been martyred, I think, since 1900s and were in all the centuries before. Uh, But it will even be a greater uh, experience in, in killing of Christians when this seal occurs. Now we have the sixth seal. Cosmic upheaval. I looked. When he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, I believe this cosmic upheaval could well be a nuclear exchange. And I'll explain. First, the great earthquake. The most deadly earthquake in recorded history occurred in 1556 in Xinjiang Providence in China where 180, excuse me, 830,000 people were killed. Now that earthquake is nothing though compared to the one that we see here which says every mountain and every island is moved. Verse 14, imagine the power in that. The sun and the moon are darkened. It appears as if stars and meteors fall from the sky. The sky will be split apart. Now let me just make some comments about these things. First, the moon and the sun are blackened. The moon looks red. That is some of the descriptive terms that are used of what's called the nuclear winter, which is what scientists say will happen in the atmosphere when and if there is a nuclear explosion. Now, a fellow came out back in 1983 and painted a picture of what would happen to the climate of the world if the United States and Russia suddenly unleashed their nuclear weapons on each other. And basically he said, 
that all the debris and all would block out the sun. The sun would be darkened. But you know, uh, at night the sun or the moon looks red when there's a bunch of debris in the atmosphere. And the temperatures would drop from 30 to 40 degrees instantly. And there would not be enough sunlight to allow for photosynthesis to take place, so you wouldn't have plants being able to produce. And the temperatures, as it said, would drop dramatically. Well, that was in 1983. And in 2007 and 2008, uh, scientists have, using more modern scenarios and more modern uh, instruments, have come up with what they believe would happen with a nuclear exchange of various strengths. I just want to give you quickly these. Now, they've been able to project a 10-year projection, which they weren't able to do previously. They also, with their models and their instruments and computer programs, were able to calculate how this debris would go up into the uh, atmosphere from the uh, troposphere to the stratosphere to the mesosphere up to 50 miles. They were able to figure that in. Now, here's what they said. A minor nuclear war such as between India and Pakistan or in the Middle East, with each country using 50 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs as airbursts on urban areas, could produce climate change unprecedented in recorded human history. This is only 0.03% of the explosive power of the current global arsenal. Second, this same scenario could produce global ozone depletion because the heating of the stratosphere would enhance the chemical reactions that destroy ozone. A nuclear war between the United States and Russia today could produce nuclear winter with temperatures plunging below freezing in the summer in major agricultural regions, threatening the food supply for most of the planet. The climate effects of the smoke from burning cities and industrial areas would last for several years, much longer than previously thought. The new climate model simulations that have the capability of including the entire atmosphere and oceans show that the smoke would be lofted by solar heating to the upper stratosphere where it would remain for years. Now, they took three scenarios. First, they took what they called the limited exchange like between Pakistan and India, which would produce five megatons of black smoke and debris. And they figured out what effects of that would be. Then a second scenario was a war between two superpowers who still maintain large nuclear arsenals. The United States and Russia were calculated. In one scenario, there was 50 megatons of black smoke produced. In another, there was 150 tons of black smoke produced. Now, for the first time, a complete calculation of not only atmospheric but also oceanic circulation was conducted, including the entire atmosphere from the surface to 50 miles up. Previous calculations had not been run for 10-year simulations, but here they were. The climate response to the above scenarios were calculated, all three different ones. Five megatons of smoke, 50 megatons of smoke, and debris, and 150 megatons. 
compared to the global warming observed for the past century, all three scenarios show massive cooling. Compared to the climate change for the northern hemisphere for the past 1,000 years, the climate change from any of these scenarios is unprecedented. Compared to the climate change for the past millennium, even the five megaton case, that's the war between India and Pakistan, would plunge the planet into temperatures colder than the Little Ice Age of approximately 1600 to 1850. This would be essentially take effect instantly, and agriculture would be severely threatened. Larger amounts of smoke would produce a larger climate change, and as for the 150 megaton case, produce a true nuclear winter, making agriculture impossible for years. In both cases, new climate model simulations show that the effects would last for more than a decade. This was from uh, an article research that was done uh, back a few years ago. And I got it from uh, Wikipedia on nuclear winter. Now, again, I say this to bring out that if this war is indeed the war between Russia and their invasion of Israel, and it involves uh, God pouring out, and it does his wrath on, the, on Gog and Magog, and Russia may assume the United States or some other country has been involved, and they may lose, release their nuclear weapons, and we see all of this taking place, the climate changing. You can see why the famine is talked about. You can see why, uh, again, the death of 1.7 billion people. Isn't all this beginning to make sense when you see how it could indeed, and I'm not saying this is the way it's going to happen, but it surely could happen this way. And you see how the stage is being set for the Antichrist? I mean, the world's going to be crying for anybody that will give them any hope at all. Now, let's conclude in verses 15 through 17. When the world is in this catastrophic, cosmic upheaval and let me add as well that he said he saw the sky he saw the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled upon itself that's one of the descriptions of a nuclear explosion the atmosphere rolls back on itself and it's not so much the damage of the explosion itself but it's the big sweep out and then the vacuum coming back in that causes much of the destruction as well also, when he sees, it looks like he sees stars falling from the sky. Well, there's a cobalt nuclear bomb uh, that the Russians, it's a fractional orbiting bomb that has numerous warheads that come out of one explosion. So it would appear as to be stars falling from the sky uh, when it came down. It would look like meteors. And if he's just writing what he's seen, he's describing it as he would have described it. Uh, and it would look like meteors coming down. Uh, again, the sky splitting apart is a definition or a term used to talk about nuclear explosions. Uh, so again, we could be talking about something of that magnitude or more. Again, how everything is, shakes. But look at the response the people on the earth, the unbelievers have. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, 
Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is coming. Who is able to stand? They're crying for the rocks to fall on them. They're recognizing this as the wrath of God being poured out on them. But rather than repenting and turning to God in faith, they're saying, fall on us rocks, kill us. Who can escape? Who can stand? Well, who's, what's the answer to the question? Who can stand? Only those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only those who belong to Jesus. They'll be able to stand. Those who have rejected Him will not be able to stand. They will beg. And what we're going to see, and we'll look more next week at this, even in God's pouring forth of His judgment, there's a measure of grace. Because His judgments are intended to bring men to repentance. But what we see over and over again is like we saw in Pharaoh, the judgments did not soften his heart, but hardened him. He hardened his heart. And we will see this term used over and over again in, in Revelation. When they refuse to repent, they cry out in the judgment, but they will not turn to Christ in faith and repentance and be saved. All right? And why would it? I mean, it always could be, but what would be the reason? What? But does... Mm-hmm. Immune from the starvation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it could. I guess you, the question would have to be, uh, is there support in the rest of Scripture for referring to Israel as oil and wine? It's flowing with milk and honey. If he'd said, don't touch the milk and the honey, we would think for sure. So I guess, I know there is spoken of as a grape vine, as a vine, but I don't know how much it's used, spoken of as wine or oil. So I think you would need to search out the Scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you would want to to, to see some some indication of that. All right. Any more questions?